Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. All right. Hey, uh, today is going to be a lot of, of teaching, a lot of uh, uh, new, new stuff. So uh, we have notebooks on the back table there. If you're a, a note-taking person or want to become one, just grab one of those. Uh, it's a good day to start uh, because there, there's going to be a lot new, I expect, today. Uh, we are inviting you again to fast with us as, as a church family the next three days, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and into Wednesday evening, just to set the stage for the coming year of kind of uh, consecrating this year in our lives for God in, in the coming year. Usually we do this the uh, first week of January, but the Bulldogs are in the national championship tomorrow, so I thought I'd call church fast. <laughs> Nothing? <laughs> I'm just kidding. They don't need it. Um, but uh, no, we, we want to do uh, encourage you uh, to, to give up something that's valuable to you. It doesn't have to be food. It can be social media. Some of you, that's a great idea to give up social media, not even for three days, maybe for like three decades. But uh, uh, social media, sugar, coffee, uh, just give up something that's valuable to you and give that time over to God uh, and pray over this coming year. Uh, but we are beginning today a new series on the Gospel of John. We're inviting you to in, uh, participate in this, reading about a chapter a week. How many of you read John chapter 1 this week? A uh, handful of you. So uh, we're posting that on Facebook as well. So this coming week, we encourage you to read John chapter 2. We'll go into that next week. Uh, but today is all about John 1. John 1 is absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, every word in John is written with so much purpose. And the hardest thing for me in preparing this message was just compressing it all into a single message. Uh, because I'm not exaggerating to say that I could teach from John 1 for months and just scratch the surface of everything that's there. There is so much in John chapter 1. Uh, but since today is the first day of the, the series, what I want to do is kind of just uh, consider his audience that he's writing to. Uh, we know that Matthew's audience for his gospel was primarily Jews and uh, the deeply, deeply religious of that day. Mark's audience was actually mostly uh, kind of directed towards the Roman audience. Luke's audience was mostly Greek. John's gospel seems to be more universal. It's more written to Greeks and, and Jews, whoever will listen, whoever will pay attention. And we see that in the language he uses right from the beginning in John 1.1. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know as we continue uh, reading that the word is a reference to Jesus Christ. It's uh, just blatantly obvious. So why did John not start by saying in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was God and Jesus was with God? Why did he start by using this term, the word? It's a Greek word, logos or logos. Uh, and John was very intentionally using a language here that would appeal both to the Jewish uh, people of that day and to the Greeks of that day. It was a single word that, that appealed to both audiences. Now, to those with a Jewish background, a Jewish culture, the word really fit the narrative of the Old Testament. Because we know from the book of Genesis that uh, uh, God created everything through his word. Hebrews 11 echoes this. Psalm 33 does as well. In fact, I'll read Psalm 33, 6. It simply says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. 
by saying that Jesus was the word of God uh, to the mind rooted in Jewish culture, they would have recognized that uh, John was saying Jesus was essentially the agent of creation. He was uh, the expression of the word of God. Uh, one way I've heard, I heard it described this week would be as if though I were sitting up here with my son and I said, uh, I would like something to drink. And strictly based upon my words, my son gets up and goes and fixes me a drink. It, it was my words that initiated the action. It was my son that carried them out. What John was saying here is it was the spoken word of God that initiated creation. It was Jesus Christ who was the logos, the expression of that word that carried out the work. Now, I think, though, the term logos was more likely intended to really appeal to those with a Greek background, a Greek philosophy, which was kind of the growing philosophy of that day. Uh, we'll see a bit more in John of how he goes to great lengths to connect with the Jewish audience, but I want to show you how he appeals here to the Greek audience. Um, this word in Greek philosophy, it was a way of thought, uh, and it was kind of like the pinnacle of Greek thought. This is kind of what you were pursuing, the logos. And I, I have a definition here for you that I want to read to you of logos. It is, uh, this is uh, according to Greek philosophy, it's universal divine reason. It's an imminent, transcendent, eternal, and unchanging truth present from the time of creation and available to every individual who seeks it. By the way, this definition is not taken from a Christian source. This actually came from PBS. This is, according to Greek philosophy, just the pinnacle of the Greek mindset. And what John was saying from the go, from the very start, to his Greek audience was, everything that you are seeking in life, this logos, the divine reason for living, the purpose of creation, all of it is found in this person, Jesus Christ. To the person with that Greek mindset, when John says that Jesus is the logos, the word, he is the fulfillment of this word, the Greek mindset would have been hooked immediately saying, I've got to read more because this is what I am pursuing to understand in life is the logos. So they would have been hooked immediately. Uh, but where I want to spend most of our time today is examining the extremes that John went to to connect with his Jewish audience uh, so what I want to do is read the first 18 verses of John 1 together. Many of you have read this before. You've heard it many times. You may have read it this week. What I'm going to ask you to do is much, much easier said than done. I'm going to ask you to try it anyway. And that's just to read these words as though you're reading them for the first time, kind of with fresh eyes. You've never heard it taught on before. This is the first time you've ever read it, beginning in verse 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone who uh, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He, uh, he cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said he comes after me. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Now here's the truth. If I asked you, if you read that for the first time, what do you think of that? Uh, some of you would give the churchy answer and say, Pastor, that was powerful. But if you give the honest answer, you would probably say, Pastor, that was confusing. That was really confusing. It's talking about this word becoming flesh and then light overcomes darkness. And then there's this guy named John the Baptist. And then he's back to talking about this word again. And then he's talking about light and darkness again. And then he's talking about John the Baptist again. And, and it's like uh, um, the language is strange and the flow of the whole thing kind of makes no sense. Uh, so was John just a really bad writer? Uh, was he a bad writer and he, he didn't have any whiteout or an eraser, so he would start writing and then he realized he wasn't done yet, so he had to go back and talk about it again. Uh, why was it out of order? No, the, actually, what we discover is these first 18 verses of John, as I mentioned, are extremely carefully written and have incredible purpose to them. There are two very unique things happening in these first 18 verses. The first is they are meant to serve as a prologue or an introduction to the rest of the gospel. So he kind of sums up the entire gospel in these 18 verses. And then in 19, verse 19 is where he actually launches into the gospel story uh, by talking about John the Baptist. It's the same way that Luke launches into the gospel. The second thing that, that's unique here is John is actually writing these first 18 verses in a form of Hebrew po poetry, uh, a, a form of Jewish poetry, and we're going to break all of that down. Uh, but I want to look first at, at two methods that John is, is using here to really connect with his Jewish audience. He uses two languages that they are extremely familiar with. The first is the language of the tabernacle, and the second is the language of creation. And first, I want to look at the language of the tabernacle that John uses in these 18 verses. Uh, one of the major themes of the Old Testament leading up to the time of Moses is that of the tabernacle or to the time of Solomon. Uh, so Moses was instructed around Exodus 25 to build a tabernacle, which is essentially a tent. And, and they would build it uh, the way that God instructed them to. And they would bring the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle. And God's presence resided in the uh, tabernacle. Now, I want to specify the tabernacle was not symbolic of holding God's presence, uh, or it didn't represent holding God's presence. In the Old Testament, it actually held the manifest presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. 
Now, about 15 chapters after Moses was given this instruction to build the tabernacle, he finally completed and brought the ark inside, and the very presence of God now resided in the tabernacle. And I want to just read Exodus 40, beginning in verse 33, as they're wrapping up the, the construction of the tabernacle. It says, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle, and the uh, and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down that, that yellow or orange, however you see it, those words. Moses finished the work. So he completed the tabernacle. And then the verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, why are we talking about the tabernacle? Because when John was writing the story of Jesus here, he immediately goes into the language of the tabernacle. If we go to John 1.14, John writes this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, this is written so that it'll make sense to you and to me. But the word here is a single word for made his dwelling. The word is a Greek word, skinuo, which literally means he fixed his tabernacle among us. That's the meaning of the word. That's how the Jewish person would have known it right away. It basically means he tabernacled among us. In other words, John was saying, Jesus is the tabernacle among us. If we continue that in John 1.14, I want to show you this. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling upon, among us or he made his tabernacle among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Now, I just want you to remember what we just read in the book of, of Exodus, which is pointing to Jesus Christ. If we go back to Exodus 40.35, I'll put them up here together. So John says he made his tabernacle and we have seen his glory. If we go back to Moses, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What John is saying is we have seen the glory of God that filled the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And it is the one and only son, Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is being fulfilled among us. It, the tabernacle was actually pointing to Jesus all along. When we're talking about the, this tent, that the presence of God resided there. The glory of God was there. Every part of God, the being of God, was within this tent. And John says that tent was talking about Jesus. In Jesus, he has, God has tabernacled among men. He has brought that tabernacle to us. Jesus is essentially the tabernacle with skin on, which is a funny way of saying it, but also the fulfillment of the tabernacle. If you remember in Genesis 22, when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and he takes him up uh, on the mountain, and God instead uh, supplies a sacrifice. It was a ram who had his head caught in a, a bushel of thorns, and this, this ram was one of the most vivid images of Jesus that we have in the Old Testament. That ram was an image of Jesus. Well, when we get to the end of the construction of the tabernacle, I want you to see what they did. One of the last things they did in Exodus 36, verse 19. It says, then they made for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red. 
It's all pointing to Jesus. The tabernacle, the presence of God, is covered with a ram skin representative of Jesus Christ, dyed red, which is probably pointing to the blood that he poured out on the cross. It was all pointing to Jesus the whole time. We have to do a lot of studying to find this out. To the Jewish mindset, these things are coming together right away. They're recognizing when John says that he has set his tabernacle before us in the flesh, he is saying that Jesus is the presence of God right here with us. Another connection that, that uh, John made uh, was uh, if, if you looked at John 1.18, he says, no one has ever seen God. But in verse 14, he says, but we have seen his glory. This would have made the people think of Exodus 33 when Jesus or, or when Moses said, God, let me see you. And God said, no one can see me and live, but I'll set you on this rock and my glory will pass before you, and you can see my glory as it goes by. You can't see God, but you can see his glory. John is pointing to that again. Another thing, uh, when they say that, that the phrase that he is full of grace and truth, uh, this is almost the exact same language in, in Exodus 34, 6, and they would have thought of that right away. But, but just as with this language of the tabernacle was appealing to the Jewish uh, people, John used the language of creation to the, do the exact same thing. And it, it, to me, it was just astounding as I read this this week. If we go back to verse 1, John 1, We'll read one and two. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was God, with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I've talked about this technique that, that uh, authors of scripture used all the time. It's called uh, remez. It's a, a hint, basically. We talked about this with Zacchaeus, how Jesus said the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. In their mindset, they would have immediately gone to Ezekiel 34, where it's talking about the son of man coming to seek and to save that which, which was lost. So when John launches into the gospel with these words, in the beginning, where is he taking us? He's taking us to the moment of creation, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I love that John begins this way when we consider how the other gospel writers begin. Because Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing it back to Abraham. Luke begins with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing it back to Adam. John just says Jesus' lineage doesn't start with a person at all. It goes further than Abraham. It goes further than Adam. He says he was there at the moment of creation. He was there in Genesis 1.1. And John's intent was that we would read every word of the book of John, the gospel of John, from that mindset of the eternal God who has put on flesh, literally God has put on flesh and made his dwelling among us. Every miracle he performs, every life he touches, every word he speaks come from, comes from God himself. It is a revelation of God. It is a revelation of God's heart. It is a revelation of God's character. And it's incredible, yet we're still only scratching the surface of what John is saying here. Now, I've never seen this before this week, uh, but, but when John uses this, this Rimes technique to transport his readers back to Genesis 1, what John actually does is he writes this entire prologue using poetry, which is in the exact same format as Genesis chapter 1. So I want to show you this. Some of you uh, have seen this before, but if you look at Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is written in poetic language. So 
it says on the first day, God created night and day. On the second day, he created the skies. On the third day, he created the land. And then he kind of goes on the fourth day into filling each one of those. So you see the fourth day, he creates the sun, the moon, and stars, which lines up with the night and day. The fifth day, he creates the birds of the air, which lines up with the sky. The sixth day, he creates the animals and humanity, which uh, occupy the land. So after, it's this, it's this uh, ABC, ABC, that's the kind of the format of the poetry, and then there's a D. D is the note of completion. So we find that in Genesis 2.2. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. I want you to write that down again. I want you to notice it said, God had finished the work. What did we read in Exodus 40, 33? So Moses finished the work. It's, it's the, the kind of the stamp that ends the, the poem, so to speak. Now, remember, John comes off as kind of confusing and out of order. Why is he bouncing around all over the place? And the reason is because John is using the same poetic uh, formula that we find in Genesis. So if we looked at John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was God, and the Word was with God. You can put that slide up for me if you would, Greg. John 1.1, 1, 1, he's talking about the Word. When we get to the kind of the second stanza in John 1, beginning in verse 6, he's talking about a man named John who came to testify. The third stanza we get to in John 11, he's talking about how some people received him, but some people didn't. And now just like in Genesis, he goes back to the first thing. So in John 1:14, he comes back to the word and he says, the word became flesh. And then we get to uh, John 1:15. And he comes back to John and he says, John testified. And then we get to John 1.16 and he says, we have received him. Do you see the exact same pattern that takes place in the, in the book of Genesis? It's that ABC, ABC. So all that is left at this moment is to wrap up the poem, to, to give it that, that note of completion, just like we saw in, in the book of Genesis. And this is where John kind of veers off course. Because he begins to wrap up the poem in verse 18, but he doesn't stick to the script. He gets off the, uh, to the last line of the poem, and it reads this way in John 1.18. It says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made known. Now, if you're reading alone here, uh, along, you should notice two things. You're probably thinking that there's a typo there. First of all, there's no period. Second of all, your Bible says has made him known. It's made God known, the Father known. But actually, your translators put that in there because they didn't want to put an incomplete sentence in the Bible. In the Greek language, John writes an incomplete sentence. He just says he has made known, and then he cuts off. He doesn't actually finish the sentence, and, and the translators uh, of your Bible said, well, he must have been talking about the Father, so we're going to put, made him known in there. But that's not actually what, what, what uh, John says. It's an incomplete sentence, and that's how he ends the poem. That's how he ends the prologue, by kind of leaving you just saying, what's going on here? Why didn't he do like they did in Genesis or in Exodus, where they said the work was finished? But does anyone know... In the Gospel of John, Jesus' final words on the cross. 
in John 19.30, it says, when he received his drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what John does in the first chapter is he sets up this poetry by, by the exact same format as Genesis, but then he stops and he says, I'm not going to end it here because you have to hear the story of Jesus Christ. And he can end the poem himself on the cross when he says, it is now finished. When we are talking about the story of salvation and the story of forgiveness, the story of redemption, it wasn't finished yet until Jesus hung on the cross. And when he gave his life, he said, it is now complete. The story is now finished. Renee, could you come? When we go to, to, to the book of Genesis and we have this poetic formula that's talking about creation out of nothing and then it was complete, what we have in the Gospel of John, uh, if we went to chapter 3, is we, we have um, a man coming up to Jesus, Nicodemus, and he says, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And he says, how can I be born again? So, so what we're talking about in the Gospel of John, in Genesis, it was about bringing life out of nothing. In John, it's about bringing new life. It's about bringing redemption to old life. It's about being born again. And it wasn't until Jesus was on the cross that he said, now you can put a final note on it. Now, because of my work on the cross, you can come before me. You can approach God through faith. And you are pure and holy and righteous by the grace of God that was accomplished on the cross. I told you there was a lot here. Can you guys stand with me?
invite you into this place. Church, as Renee leads us, again, I just want to encourage you to rest in the embrace of God. again to read John chapter 2. Uh, the record right now is someone read four translations of John chapter 1, so see if you can beat that, all right? Uh, have a good week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.